You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Thank you so much, Alana, for taking the time. I am so excited to do this. Before we start, maybe can you like introduce yourself? Like, who are you? Sure. So I'm Alana Vandersloos. I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. I'm a TEDx speaker, an author. Um, I'm an eating disorder survivor, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I had three undiagnosed eating disorders and I was able to recover through intuitive eating. So I owe my life to intuitive eating, which is why I do what I do. I'm very passionate about it. I'm also a high school English teacher. So I have like a lot of different hats big Stranger Things fan, big podcast fan, live in New Jersey. That's basically me in a nutshell. And I'm sure you'll give the uh, more professional introduction <laughs> later on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know this, I'm interested in the TEDx part. What was your TEDx speech about? Or was it, what is it called? Is it called a talk or is it a speech? Yeah, it's called a TEDx talk okay. and it's um, at making health and wellness accessible to all. Awesome. So it was all about how there's this one very singular version of health and wellness. It's like the blonde chick with the yoga mat and the $17 green juice. And she's thin and young and pretty. And that's it. Right. Wearing Lululemon pants, which are like, you know, however I didn't even buy, it's too expensive. <laughs> it's just too much. Yeah. Um, but like <laughs> we have this very one singular view and it's really exclusive and it leaves other people out of the equation in terms of who can be a part of the health and wellness club? Like there are people, low socioeconomic status, different races, different sizes that are basically being told implicitly or explicitly that they can't pursue health and wellness the way that other people can. So we need to broaden our vision of what health and wellness actually is. And it's not just this one type, eating this one type of food, exercising this one type of way. It can look a million different ways and it needs to in order to get more people into the conversation and get people feeling like they can pursue health without it having to look one certain way. So how do we do that on a global scale was basically what the talk was about. Oh, I love that. Which is sort of the movement of health at every size that so many people are like, oh, it's healthy at every size, which is so untrue. But this idea that if you want to access health, then you don't have to look a certain way and you probably won't eventually even look that way just because some influences influencer says you should look a certain way or you can look this way. It doesn't mean that's what health looks like for you. I love that. And do you have, I know you said that they have like a lot of them that they don't necessarily publish. Do you have a link to it? Because I can share it if people want to listen to it or watch it. Sure. So depending on when this comes out, I should have the link for it. Right now, it's just the four-hour live stream and what they have to do. TEDx, every TEDx is an independently run 
uh, program or event, Mm -hmm. but when the individual talks are cut, they're sent over to TED headquarters to be approved. And right now, almost everybody's talk was approved except for mine. And I was starting to sweat it out. I was like, are they not going to approve this talk? And I got like all this like imposter syndrome and anxiety over. I had to coach myself a lot on it. And then I found out they're actually going to put it on the TED main site. They're going to feature it. So it was, it was that good. It wasn't that terrible. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Huge relief. But I think we're going to talk about this in terms of when people get stuck in recovery is we our fear and our anxiety is fear of the future. And we project the worst case scenario all the time. Oh my God, for sure. And I think that's what people do in recovery. Yeah. And I think that's how people get So that's a great segue because I think we can use that as almost an example, but we can, I mean, there are so many examples. This idea of people feeling stuck and really this is at any stage. So before somebody seeks help or you know, in middle of their treatment, they're like, I've done all this work and I just feel stuck it's pretty common before anybody reaches out. It's like, I just don't know what to do. I feel completely stuck in recovery or my journey or relationship with food. So I guess the question, I'm trying to think of how to word it, but like, why, why do people feel stuck? What's so big about making the commitment toward healing your relationship with food that sort of keeps people where they're at? It's a good question. And I think it's, a multi-pronged question as well. I think part of it is they see all of the things that are wrong. They see certain behaviors that they're doing that are disordered. They hear the voice inside their head that's disordered. And they know there are so many things that need to change that they don't know where to start. I think that's part of it. It's like, do I start with stopping the behaviors or do I have to you know, do mindset work first? And where do I start? Where do I begin? Who do I go for, for help? Do I need help? Am I quote unquote sick enough for that help? I think the fact that it's such a big undertaking to heal can be very scary. I also think that where people are at in terms of comfort, I think that even though having an eating disorder or being stuck in disordered eating can be hugely damaging mentally and physically to somebody, the fear of the unknown is actually scarier to them. I think sometimes it's your, your eating disorder can be very comfortable in that it's the familiar devil. You know, it's hurting you, but you know how it works and how it operates. But this idea of recovery, have a lot of clients who ask questions like, well, what's going to happen to my health? If I ditch the diets and stop pursuing weight loss, what's going to happen to my body size? Am I going to gain even more weight? than I'm at right now. And that scares me. And so I think fear of the unknown, fear of the future is huge in terms of stopping people from wanting to pursue recovery. And I think the last portion of it is the mindset piece. When we're stuck in in an eating disorder or disordered eating, we have that ED voice in our head, or as anyone in the intuitive eating space knows as the food police. We have this voice and these messages and narratives that we've internalized over time since we were probably kids. And they start to sound like facts. So when we start thinking about recovery, we have that other voice in our head saying, that's unsafe. That's going to be too scary. You're going to undo, quote unquote, all the good work that you've done trying to pursue weight loss. So I I think it's all three of those things. It's fear of the unknown. It's the voice in the head. And it's the fact that it's such a huge undertaking to pursue recovery. Yeah. And I'm going back to, in my mind, the example that you just shared before of, oh, my TEDx speech wasn't up. And and what if it was that terrible that they 
didn't want to feature it at all. And I mean, in fact, it happens to be that it was exactly the opposite. It was so good. They want to feature it on their main website, but like, can you help us understand how potentially that gets in the way with either making the general decision to recover or just smaller steps in the way toward recovery of how that sort of, I know we were talking about this, uh, future tripping gets in the way of, you know, making different choices or just staying anxious in the spot that somebody is stuck. Yes. So future tripping is kind of very similar to anxiety in that it's created through fear of the future. And the thing is, and we tend to forget this, the future hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So we're fearing something that literally hasn't happened yet. We don't even know the actual outcome, but it's an evolutionary thing where we are biologically wired to always look for danger. And if we're looking toward the future, we think that we could, you know, get the jump on that danger Mm -hmm. and avoid it, or at least be prepared for it. Because when we were cave people, you know, we had to know where the line was. So people are fearing a future that hasn't even happened yet. So what I tell people is you have to make future tripping a thing of the past. And P-A-S-T is an acronym because I love frameworks. But before I even get into what past means and, and how that helps with future tripping is, I remember hearing this story and it wasn't even my story. I heard it on a podcast. They were speaking to a man who was always afraid he was going to lose his wife, lose his wife, lose his wife. And he was so afraid to lose her. And she actually ended up dying. I think it was in a car crash. Oh my God. And he said in an interview that worrying about her dying didn't make the grief and the hurt any less when she actually did die. So we prepare ourselves for these potentially horrible things that are going to happen. But even when we do that, it doesn't really help us if that worst case scenario actually comes true. So it's really just a waste of energy. So, I mean, don't get me wrong to think about all the different types of possibilities that could happen, I think is smart. And again, just natural for us as human beings, but to fixate on the worst case scenario, I don't think that does anybody any good. So when I talk about future tripping, I say, make it a thing of the past. That's P-A-S-T. P stands for present mindedness. Try to ground yourself in the present. And you could do that in a variety of ways. But one way I tell my clients is pick something that's in the room that you're in, that you're looking at and say to yourself, okay, I'm looking at a soap dispenser. It has rounded edges and a white top and it has pictures of citrus on. Like just really try to focus on one thing in the room and describe it. And that's going to kind of ground you in the present moment. Thinking about our past, we can't change the past. Thinking about our future, we don't even know what's going to happen. So try to stay present-minded. So that's the P. The A is for addressing negative thoughts. And I think that's best done through journaling. Just kind of really listing out what are the negative thoughts that you're having and then address them by assessing the validity of them. Are those negative thoughts really going to happen or are they really happening? So for example, with recovery, you know, I'm never going to recover or it's too hard to recover or I'm going to gain so much weight and recover. Like, are those things actually true? Like, do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that those things are going to happen or are those just negative thoughts that you've been conditioned to think? The S is for self-care. I think when we're so worried about our future, we need to take care of ourselves in the present. So that could look anyway. That could be a bubble bath. That could be meditating, journaling, exercising, taking a walk, deep breathing, whatever it has to be to really just take care of yourself in the moment. And then tap in is for, again, journal and meditating. So those specifically tap into how are you feeling 
in this moment? What emotions are coming up for you? I think we get so caught up in how the emotion feels that we don't even know what emotion we're feeling. Mm -hmm. We just feel the physical sensation, but we don't know, like, is this anxiety? Is this shame? Is this, what is this? So really kind of journaling out what am I feeling? And then also meditating, tapping into what you're feeling in the present moment, what your thoughts are, and then maybe turning them off for a second and just letting yourself, again, it's all about present-mindedness and awareness, like breathing and clearing your mind. Yeah. I mean, I think that this, first of all, I love that you think in acronyms, it's so good for memory. And I mean, if anybody is in school or having to take any tests, my mom taught me about this. Just whenever she would go to the grocery, she would refuse to write a grocery list, but she would just sort of remember the first letter and do the acronym thing. Um, And that's how she would, you know, go grocery shopping. But either way, great memory trick. But I think what's significant about this past acronym is that what we're trying to do is instead of jumping to the future, can we stay grounded? And it's not like a, oh, just snap out of it and turn your brain off because obviously that won't work ever. But it's like, instead of saying what we shouldn't do, here's a framework for what you can do, which is focusing on this moment and almost in a distracting sort of way. Meaning if you're looking at the soap dispenser and you're trying to describe the citrus fruits on it, you can't possibly be thinking about lots more than that. You have to, which is why it's grounding. And then the journaling also. I mean, I'm a huge fan of journaling. I love it. It's such a great release and just getting things off your chest. So it's great to be able to just look at the words on paper. And then for some reason, a lot of times that's all it takes to sort of stop this obsessive loop and you see it on the paper and then that's it. You know, Obviously, it's not like, oh, you do this thing with the four components and then it's all gone. It's it's something that you practice over time and it's really, really helpful in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I was actually just telling this story to my alumni group last night for coaching. I was telling them all about the TED Talk and I said to them, I said, it wasn't like I journaled about the TEDx talk once and I was like totally good about it. I had to do that every single day, multiple times a day during the day. I'd be thinking about it. I'd be like, no, 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 you don't know what's going to happen yet. You don't know what's going to happen yet. And I had to bring myself back. So it's a repetitive process. And as you said, you know, present-mindedness, addressing the negative thoughts, self-care and tapping in past, it's a combination of a temporary release from like a looping negative thought or like future tripping. It's temporary release from that. It's temporary distraction from that. And at the same time, it's also, you know, being present minded and processing those thoughts because it's okay, as you kind of said, to temporarily take a break, to kind of stop the loop because we can get in that future tripping loop. Just stop the loop for a second. And then when you come back to it, you come back to it a little bit more relaxed, like things like journaling and meditating and deep breathing, they ignite the parasympathetic nervous system. So where we just calm down and look at something a little bit more rationally instead of our lizard brain. That's like fear, fear, danger, danger, kill. <laughs> oh my like, God. Yeah. We're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of video games when you say that, <laughs> um, but definitely how our brain works sometimes. So sadly, I wanted to go back to something that you said before about I forget exactly the words that you use, but like the bad thing that we know it's familiar. So even if it's destructive, yeah. yeah. So even if it's destructive and we totally hate it, it's not unknown, which is terrifying in and of itself. Sometimes the way that I like to think about this is not only that it's the devil that we know, but also that it is serving some sort of function for us. It's not just a devil. 
And that if we think about it that way, we can try to understand a little bit more about what's actually keeping us almost safe in our eating disorder and what keeps someone staying. And I mean, if we think about staying stuck at any point, it's really mostly about ambivalence because there are two sides that are pulling just as hard, which means that you're stuck in the middle. So you can't go in any one direction. So there's a very compelling argument for recovery, I would say. And then there's obviously a very compelling reason to stay in one's eating disorder. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit to that piece, like what would be compelling actually about, you know, staying in someone's eating disorder? Sure. So I'm going to throw another acronym at you. (laughs) So I I call this one salve, like the salve that you would put on a wound and it's S-A-L-V safety, acceptance, love, and validation. And I say those are the four very basic human needs that we try to fulfill when we have this eating disorder. And I think you were totally right in that your eating disorder does serve you. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to fulfill one of those four needs, but it's doing it in a way that ultimately doesn't serve you anymore. And, but knowing which of the four your eating disorder is trying to validate and fulfill can help you find other ways of fulfilling those needs that serve you better and aren't so damaging to you. So for example, when I say safety, I mean not only physical safety, but emotional safety. Are we safe to be in the body that we're in? A lot of people with eating disorders have had some sort of trauma in their lives. Sometimes it's sexual trauma. And sometimes people don't feel safe to be in a certain type of body anymore. So they either try to make themselves as big as possible so that other people don't find them attractive, or they try to shrink themselves as much as possible so they can't be seen. So there's a safety issue. Do you feel safe being at the size you are in a thin, obsessed society? The second is acceptance, not only acceptance from people around you, but acceptance of yourself. Like, do you feel okay being who you are in the size that you are with all of the internalized narratives that you've been receiving your entire life that thin is better and et cetera, et cetera. Love, love for yourself and love from other people. Do you have a narrative that if you're at a certain size, you won't be loved or you won't find love? And then the last one, which is the one that came up a lot for me was validation. A lot of people who are in, you know, straight sized bodies are validated or somebody loses weight. You look so good. What have you been doing? What do you eat? How do you exercise? And people become attached to that external validation, that gold star, that pat on the back. And they don't know how to cultivate internal validation for themselves or be their own cheerleader outside of any external accolades and awards and circumstances. So once you understand that your eating disorder is stemming from this need for safety, acceptance, validation, or love, you could say to yourself, okay, so so for me, I had relied on external validation my whole life. And when I left college was when my eating disorder started because there were no grades anymore. Mm, I had a way to rank myself anymore. And it was very scary to me who had built her self-worth on the back of external validation. So I had to think to myself, okay, how can I validate myself without being thin? Like, is there another way for me to cultivate my self-worth that's not tied to the number on the scale or what other people think of my body? So once you know where it's coming from, you can find another way to serve that need. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not as simple as that. Just, you know, for anybody listening to be like, oh, well, easy for you to say, I want to like, thanks a lot. Okay. So I have to increase my self-esteem. Okay. Check. Did that. I'll take one day. No, it's obviously a lot easier said than done. But I think, you know, just to sort of reiterate what you're saying, it's instead of completely shooting in the dark here, at least we're narrowing where we have to go and the work that you have to do specific for each individual. And that's the path that you continue on. At least there's a direction. At least you have something to work with and not to say that once you figure out what you're missing, then, well, then it's easy. Absolutely not. I mean, it took me seven years to recover. (laughs) So this is not like a one and done thing. This took a really long time. And I was stubborn in that I never sought a dietitian or a coach or a therapist. So it took a lot longer than it had to, but it does take a very long time to rewire the way we've been thinking for decades. So yeah, this is not a one and done thing. But as you said, it gives you an idea of where it's all coming from. And I think it's it's even just really eye-opening and almost a sense of relief to realize it's not about the food. Yeah. And it's not about trade. It's actually something deeper. And it's like, oh, okay, why this happened to me now makes sense. It's not that I'm crazy or broken or whatever. It's there was a need that wasn't being met. And now that I know that I can kind of move forward. Yeah. I love how you put that. Going back to, I think there was the last piece that you said about, you know, what makes recovery really hard and and why people stay stuck is that it's just inherently a really big mountain to climb. And it's really difficult to even start that journey if you have no idea why you would want to do that. So yes, we're talking about like anxiety and, you know, what function the eating disorder was serving. But if you think about having to recover means you need a really strong why. So, I mean, I hate that this sounds so existential. It's like, well, we need to find like uh, the purpose for recovery or like our motivation. But the truth is that for a lot of people, the reason why, not the reason why, that's so simplistic, but one of the reasons why it's really hard for them to start climbing that mountain is because it doesn't feel worth it. So I wonder if you can talk to how do you discover your why, for lack of a better way to put it? Because we kind of need to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really tough because, and I know this happened to me in some ways, your eating disorder takes over almost your entire life in a lot of ways. And it becomes your identity or it becomes a huge part of your identity and your time and your energy and your brain space so that you think about what life in recovery would be like, and you almost can't see it because you don't know how you, you'd fill your time. It's almost like I hear a lot of people say that eating disorder recovery is difficult because there's a void now. There's a void where they're not thinking about food as much or they're not over-exercising anymore so they don't know what to do with their time. So I tell them, try to figure out what you would want to do with your life. So what I try to tell them is to find their life's purpose. And I mean, it doesn't have to be like this huge thing that could literally be just a hobby. You know what I mean? Just something that brings you joy or is something that you could give back to your community in some way. So what I like to do is to find a life's purpose, you're going to tape it together. I tell people to tape it together. So T-A-P-E, talent, audience, passion, and experience. So for talent, what are you talented? Like, where do your talents lie? And that could be something that you've gained from a hobby or from work or whatever. But what are you talented in? What are you really good at? 
A, for audience, what audience would you like to serve or where would you like to give those talents to? P, passion. What did you do as a kid that you used to like to do before someone told you you needed to do something else, whether that was color or hopscotch or whatever it may be? Just what was your passion before somebody told you you had to do a certain something? And then experience. What are you experienced in? So talent, audience, passion, and experience. And that's going to help you figure out your purpose or your why for recovery. Like what can you replace your eating disorder with that's going to serve you and fulfill you uh, and bring you joy and happiness? So for example, I went over this with one of my clients and she has experience in the medical field and she does some speaking for um, various recovery groups. And she wants to help the recovery community. And she's very creative. She has a lot of passion for music and drawing and art. And she has a lot of experience with people in the eating disorder community. So I said to her, wouldn't it be interesting if once you've recovered, you could create some sort of like community group that meets together every once in a while to pursue creative passions, the people who are in eating disorder recovery to pursue new creative passions. You could teach them how to play the piano or to do art or to write or do it. It's just like a place where people can gather. You could be the person to facilitate that gathering for other people. And I think that's something that would tap into her creative side, but also sparks that community and helps other people who have been in the same position she's been in. I saw the same thing with me. I'm a high school English teacher and I have been for 11 years, but I have a passion for intuitive eating and people who use, you know, who have eating disorders the way I did. So that's how my whole business was started was I had the skill of teaching, which is very similar to coaching. And I had this passion for intuitive eating and I wanted to help people in the eating disorder community. How could I bring all of those things together? And it made the whole point of recovery worth it to me. It wasn't just recovery for myself, but I get to pay that forward in a way that feels bigger than me. Yeah. Meaning like creating a little bit more excitement for the future. And I know the future hasn't happened. So not in the fixating way, but in sort of there's any opportunity that we can create for ourselves. And so instead of it being this dark place, it can be this place full of opportunity that we can tap into our passion and creativity and our just whatever we want to do. I think it's so interesting so many people with eating disorders are high achievers and perfectionists and they're thinking, oh, well, so then I got to take my hobby and turn it into a business and a side hustle. And then eventually, you know, all that stuff. No, 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 no. Like hold your horses. We're talking about creating more to you than your eating disorder. And maybe we're talking about a career path or a job, if that's something that you're looking to figure out. But we're also talking about what do you do for yourself that has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with career has everything to do with bringing joy to you. So if that's music, then music, but you know, not in terms of like, how do I create a side hustle from this? This is just about creating more to you than your eating disorder. Exactly. And the business didn't start out as a business. I just wanted to go on Instagram and share my life post-recovery with people. Like that was it. And then it kind of morphed, but for example, I write really bad fan fiction under a pen name. Really? Yeah. Like I will die not showing anybody that... Like, Wait, hold on. So sorry you saying you're not <laughs> like, going to tell us what your name is? <laughs> oh, God. 100% no. <laughs> Please. 
hundred percent. No, I haven't even told like, like my husband hasn't even seen this stuff. Like that's I just, awesome. Well, it's something that I used to do it as a kid. Really? When I was like 10, I would write really bad. I don't know if you remember the band O-Town. They were like a boy band. No. Oh my God. It was like Backstreet Boys in sync and like O-Town. They had that reality show making the band on MTV or whatever. I was obsessed with them and I would write really bad O-Town fan fiction when I was like 10. Oh my God. So I got back into it. I was like, I really enjoy writing. I suck at writing fiction, but I like doing it. So I'm just going to do it for me. And I don't care how many reads get on it, how many people like it. I'm not even looking at the metrics. I'm just doing it for me. And I think as people need to find things to do for them that they just enjoy and have the future be something bright, not have the future be something where, oh, well, I'm going to be, you know, recovered, but miserable in my body. And like, that's going to be my life. Like there's so much that opens up for you and you'll have the time, energy, and brain space to think about those things once you recover. Yeah. I'm thinking about <laughs> now that you say the, the boy band thing, I was like, what was I busy with? I was busy with Harry Potter. Do you know that they came out with so many different games? I, I mean, I know today's day and age is a little bit less. Oh my God. Amazing. Harry Potter. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but I was obsessed with Harry Potter. We got the trivia game and there were questions about the smallest, most insignificant detail about colors and about amounts and what was the password at Christmas at Hufflepuff or, you know, something like that. And I would sit around my family and we would play and we knew every last detail. It was ridiculous. Even when we got the audiobook for, I think, book three and no, it was book four. And we memorized chapter by chapter. We can recite it. It's ridiculous. But anyways, I say all this because it doesn't have to be a typical like art, music, something like that, that you enjoy. It can be the most random anything. And if that's what brings you joy, then do that. I guess I'm curious for somebody who's listening and is like, well, I don't know, or I'm not good at anything, or I'm not excited about anything. Yes. Like we have to sort of explore that a little bit more. Is there a depressive aspect to it? And, you know, to work out individually with your therapist, but if somebody is completely stuck, what would you say? Like, how do you try to figure that out? You know, and this sounds so stupid, but it does help is just go on Google (laughs) and like, Bobby, seriously. And just like, there might be things on the list that like, you might not have even thought about that. You're like, oh yeah, that might be cool. Also, you know, there are a lot of places that offer free classes in your community. Maybe you just want to buy a free art class or a free uh, yoga class or whatever it is. But again, I really harp on the idea of tapping into and trying to remember what you like to do as a kid, Mm -hmm. because we didn't have worries about productivity or being the best quite yet, or at least it wasn't as insidious as it becomes when we're an adult. But what did you like to do when you were a kid? Can you find a through line for any of those things? Like I became a teacher and it wasn't until after I became a teacher that I realized I taught dance classes. I used to teach Taekwondo. I used to like in a journal making up like plans for random oh my businesses God. that didn't exist. Like I used to do that shit. And now I'm like, oh my God, like that connects. And I didn't realize it. So going back to your childhood, I think is huge. Another way I think people can remove the block of, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what I like. I don't know is what I call tombstone thinking, which is kind of morbid, but it's supposed to be because I was like, life... wait, should we wear black now? 
(laughs) (laughs) We should go walk through a graveyard and do this exercise now. But it's meant to be morbid because in reality, we only have one life. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So I tell people to think of three questions. What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want written on your tombstone? And when you're lying on your deathbed and you're reviewing your life, what do you want to think about it? Like, what's your opinion of your life going to be at the end? And I tell people who have, you know, body dysmorphia or, you know, just are deep in their eating disorder, like, do you really want the thing that people talk about at your funeral to be like, wow, you know, Sally had great abs. Like, is that really what you want your entire life to end up being like, you know, she fit in those jeans, you know, when she was 50, she still fit in those jeans. She was in high school. Good for Sally. Rest in peace. (laughs) That's terrible. Or at least that's not what you want them to say. You don't want that to be your legacy. Or if you're honest with yourself and not listening to your eating disorder voice, I don't think anybody would want that to be their legacy. It's going to be something like, you know, you loved with your whole heart or you were really there for people or you really contributed to your community or you were kind and compassionate and smart and whatever else, whatever, whatever resonates with you. You don't want to sit back on your life on your deathbed and be like, God, I really hope they don't serve me Jello next because it's never sugar free. And I just, you know, like, yeah. like you want to think like, wow, like that was so much fun. I wish I could do it again. Like I stumbled a lot and I got back up and I learned so much and I loved so hard and I'm leaving this world with, with no regrets. Yeah. I love that. So not in a morbid way, but just in a very almost serious way to think about what do you want? And not even for, you know, legacy might sound like a big word to people. Like, I don't really care about legacy or things like that. Cause I'm dead. Like, why do I care? But just in terms of this is a way to identify what's important to you. So I think that, that these are great questions to ask and, and to ask it to yourself really seriously. Right. Not morbid. It's life affirming. I think. Yeah. And that's not to say like, I'm one of those high achievers where the shadow side of that was my eating disorder, but I'm a high achiever. And, (laughs) you know, you don't have to do a TEDx talk or have a business or do any of that. Even if like you just, you are a stay-at-home mom and you loved the shit out of those kids and you supported your husband and you loved your husband, you loved the people around you, you had good friends that is more than enough. I think that's more than we can ask for from anybody for any of our lives. I think yeah. it doesn't matter how big or small your life is in terms of quote unquote legacy. It's just, are you leaving this earth satisfied with whatever it is that you pursued because it made you happy? Yeah. And very often what people gravitate toward generally is relationships and love and connection. And that's really, really big as humans. And just by the way, what you're saying about, we don't have to have this huge legacy. It's about how do you love you and your family? And if you have kids, then how do you love your kids? If you think about our line of work or definitely my line of work, I hate to say it this way, but like a lot of what we're doing is sort of cleaning up the damage that the original caregivers didn't give. That's just like so blunt and sort of rude, but I don't mean it that way. It's just that if you can give that in a good enough way to your kids, then you are doing what eventually people hire and hire and hire multiple providers to try to fix. So like, it's not even that that's more than enough. That is like gold, absolute gold in this world. So for all the moms out there, like bow down to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like I am no expert in parenting. I have one toddler, so I have very limited personal experience, but I will say through 11 years of teaching high school, I've realized 
it doesn't come down to grades or the kids want to be loved. They want to be supported and they want to be free to be who they are and not who you want them to be. And that's something that I'm sure is easier said than done. And I'm going to watch Archer do and pursue things that maybe I wouldn't pursue for myself or I would agree with, but just giving him the space to be himself and guide him. And another thing I do want to say for your listeners is we've been talking a lot about happiness and joy and what fulfills you. It's nothing will bring you happiness and joy. It's just something that comes from within. And I know that's like so hackneyed and oversaid and kind of just like, we hear it all the time. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I listen to podcasts of all these very high achieving people, millions of dollars, millions of followers, books and speaking engagements. And they say over and over again, I still kind of feel less than, and I still kind of feel not happy. And it's like, oh shit. Like it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how thin you are. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the things we chase them as if they are the thing, but they're not the thing. So how can we figure out ways to just be happy today? Even if you're still in your eating disorder, like how can you find happiness in yourself today? Because it's not manufactured anywhere else. Yeah. I love that. I wanted to ask you about uh, one last thing. And just mostly because this conversation feels so... I'm thinking pretty. Pretty is not the right word. It just it feels so hopeful and simple, which we know that it's not. And I guess I'm thinking about potential hiccups in the road that when someone's listening to this podcast, it could be, oh, rah, 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 that's great. I'm going to do all these things. But like when you're having this like really big eating disorder moment, you have the urge to binge or like you're in this like restrictive cycle or this obsessive loop or this really terrible body image week. It's not really so, I don't want to say not so possible, but listening to something like this might not be enough. So when someone's like really stuck in that, what would you say about what to do then? It's a good question. So I have a signature coaching model that I use with my clients and I call it chill the fuck out. Because, so if you want to know well, a, like Alana's personality, this is my signature, guys, chill the fuck out. <laughs> chill the fuck out. Yeah, I love this. Favorite word. I'm um, so glad my toddler's right there. It's totally fine. Um, so I also like to bring levity into the process of recovery because it can be very heavy and serious. And, you know, I have to get this done for my health and for my life. And yes, yes, yes. Also, chill the fuck out for a second. Let's, let's take a step back. And surprise, another acronym. It's circumstance, <laughs> thought, feeling, and outcome. And it's very much based on cognitive behavioral therapy. It's chill is the circumstance. So when we look at circumstances in our lives, everything that happens in our life is neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. So if you eat past fullness on Oreos one night, that is a very neutral and objective circumstance. It's our thoughts about it mm-hmm. that start to cause the problem. So yeah. the T is thought. After you eat past fullness on Oreos, you think to yourself, oh my God, I've binged. I've done it again. I'm never going to get over this. I'm a disgusting person. All this like crops up in your head. All these old narratives start like a ticker tape. Mm-hmm. And those thoughts then create feelings, which is the F, feelings. Feelings of shame, of hopelessness, of frustration, of resignation. And those feelings drive our outcomes. If we feel shame and hopelessness and frustration about our binging, that likely creates an outcome for the restriction. 
to make up for that binge. Mm -hmm. And then you're just setting yourself up for the next cycle and the next cycle. And I had binge eating disorder and I know that cycle is a bitch. So what I tell people is once you see that, it really helps you understand how you get from what has happened to the next thing that you do. It's something happened, you had a thought about it, it created a feeling and that drove your next action. So once you know that, you start to really get in touch with what thoughts you actually have in your brain and what emotions you're feeling most often and how those emotions are making you do certain things in your life. But we can also reverse engineer that. So I tell my clients, like, what is the outcome that you want here? Like when you look at recovery, can you list out some things you want, right? And whatever those outcomes, like, I don't want to binge anymore. I want to be binge free. Okay. So if you want to be binge free, what feelings do you need to feel about your body to create an environment where you are adequately nourishing your body so that you're not binging? You need to feel things like compassion for your body, uh, acceptance for your body, understanding for your body, patience love or at least respect or at least neutrality, right? So in order to create those feelings, what thoughts do you need to have if you do have a binge? I mean, you can't go from I'm a binge eater to I'm completely binge free. Like you're going to have slip ups along the way because this is a very nonlinear journey. So when you have a binging episode, instead of thinking thoughts like I'm disgusting, I'm fat, I'm never going to get over this, blah, blah, blah. What feelings or what thoughts would create feelings of compassion? and an empathy and patience. Thoughts like, oh, okay, I've binged. I'm curious why that happened. You know, this is going to happen on my journey and it's okay. What can I learn from this experience? This was only one binge and I'm still safe in my body. You know, just like more helpful thoughts to have that would create better feelings and drive better outcomes. And the circumstances themselves Many times our circumstances are out of our control. They just happen. And, you know, it's our thoughts and our feelings that we need to really control. Yeah. I love the reverse engineering of it because so often we think about how, okay, this made me think and feel this, which then created the next part of this cycle and loop. But if you want to be much more intentional, much more on the offense, as opposed to always playing defense, then this reverse engineering is key. I love this. So for more on Alana and her personality and her work, where can people find you? Sure. So I am most active on Instagram. So that's at freedom with food and fitness. And if someone wants to work with me as their coach, I'm an intuitive eating coach. So they can find me at freedomwithfoodandfitness.com. And probably at the time this comes out, my book will be on pre-order. So if you want to go to Amazon, uh, the book is called Freedom with Food and Fitness, How Intuitive Eating is the Key to Your Happiest, Healthiest Self. So that's probably on pre-order right now. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really grateful for your time and for your wisdom. Thank you for having me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.